Amen. Praise the Lord. So, so the 21st century is finally come of age, right? I mean, it's now 21 years old. It can drink and smoke. And uh, some of us think that maybe it, it started a little early on that, like a year early. Uh, 21st century got, got out of control this last year. The, uh, so the most popular password for 2021 is elbow bump. Elbow bump, just so you know, that's going to be my password for all my stuff because I know I'll be able to remember it. As a matter of fact, I think probably the next giveaway that we have uh, probably ought to be embroidered, uh, you know, customized elbow pads. What do you think? And we'll give those out on Mother's Day or something like that. Um, let me just add uh, a highlight. Let me add some texture to one or two of the things that uh, Brian announced for us in the announcements. So on January 13th, so not this Wednesday, this, this week is recovery week for Mission Focus. But a week from this Wednesday, we will start our Discipleship 2 class. It can also be taken as an LFBI course. It will be on Wednesday nights. And I will be doing the first four, uh, four or five sessions live, and we'll do that up here at the church. We'll do it live, and uh, you know, trust in the Lord, we'll be able to live stream it as well. And um, the first, I, I want to do that because the first few weeks are basically our how-to disciple training, just right on the front end of our discipleship too. So we'll talk to you all about the philosophy of discipleship and methodology and everything we do, and. And the reason that week number one is so important, I'm going to roll out for us a revision, a light revision of lesson 15 on the lost world. Now, we've always kind of considered lessons one and two as our evangelism lessons. As a matter of fact, I'd say, you know, if you have someone even who's lost, but they're willing to sit down with you over an open Bible, use discipleship lesson one. Start there. I mean, if they'll go through the whole 16 with you, that's okay too. Just sit around over an open Bible and, and, and do that. So we have kind of always considered lessons one and one especially, but one and two are evangelism lessons. But I got to looking at lesson 15 on the lost world. And it, you know, it says it, it, it's good to, uh, telling us how to relate to our lost world, uh, you know, employers, friends, family, and so forth. But it doesn't really say anything about how to win them to the Lord. And so I have added I, another Roman numeral into lesson 15. And I want to roll that out on the 13th so that everyone who is discipling or a discipler or being discipled can add a copy of that new lesson to their notebook. And uh, so we'll trust the Lord we'll be able to, uh, to do that there. But this, this week is recovery week. Uh, one thing that I hope to start doing also, if you will follow me on Instagram and Facebook, I'll post an image every day with the Bible reading schedule that we go through chronologically. So we go through, we read through the Bible, not Genesis to Revelation chapter by chapter, but chronologically pulling, pulling out of the Bible what comes next chronologically. And so we get all through the Bible, all the way through the Bible, but we just do it chronologically. And I will, I'll, I'll make an Instagram post and push that to my Facebook. So if you'll follow me either, either of those places, then it will remind you and say, oh, hey man, how about if I just read those chapters today? 
and we can kind of be on the same page that way, or, or at least uh, the same post. Uh, also, um, last thing, as you sat down, among the other uh, stuff that you have there is a um, study guide for next Sunday. So we'd started doing this as we're going through Romans and Revelation, and, and this, this week we're in Romans. Next Sunday we'll be back in Revelation. So this is what I would call a study guide for chapters 9 and 10, and it's, and it's very simple, basic, easy stuff, but it, it is the type of thing you can use as a Bible study this week or do with your family or do with your kids, um, and it will prepare you for what we're going to look at next Sunday. We had such a great mission-focused conference, and we had, we had a good attendance, and I don't know, what do you call it when people are just viewing? Um, audience. So we had a great audience uh, as well for Mission Focus because it showed us the immediacy of the mission field that surrounds our lives and kind of brought us a mission message for the entire year. If you missed that, check our YouTube channel at um, the short link is bit.ly slash HBC YouTube and it, it will help you put fresh eyes on the mission and use that to bring grief to the devil in 2021 for all the grief he brought us in 2020. Because really, the, the conference taught us how, how, not how to add evangelism to our lives, but how to allow an evangelistic mindset to transform everything that's already going on in our life. And that's the cool thing. It's not like you have to try and be someone you're not. It's just here's how you be who you are and make it evangelistic. And so to do that, we're offering everyone an opportunity. Join a harvest team or uh, sign up to help lead or co-lead or host a harvest team in your home. And the harvest teams are our church evangelistic small groups. So to sign up, we've got another short link, bit.ly link, bit.ly slash harvest teams, all lowercase and, and in the plural. And that will bring up a form in it. And that way, give us this month to kind of get it all organized. We'll, we have our pastors meetings on Tuesday and we'll get together Tuesday and we'll talk about how to put, how to put everything in its place and get the structure all set up. And we will be getting back with you, but it won't be immediate, but we will be getting back with you as we work this into the life of our church together. Because really, this gives us a philosophy of evangelism to match our biblical philosophy of discipleship and gives us the kind of same necessary structures to evangelism as the 16 lessons do to our discipleship and brings the same encouragement to move from friend to faith to fellowship as our discipleship does to establish someone in worship in the word in this church and in ministry with us. So it's the most unintimidating and unscary way to make sense of sharing the gospel. And it takes us back to earth's earliest believers and the message and the methods that they used to turn the world upside down 20 centuries ago in similar times of pandemic and instability and political upheaval. So do not... Be left out. Please join us at that link. 
and we'll take the month of January to get organized and going. So, to get us into 2021, I want to I want to sk- I want to kind of do a flashback, but I want to skip over 2020. Is that okay? Well, let me go all the way back to 2019. Beginning of 2019, we started what I was calling the Why series. And I really enjoyed doing it. I thought, I felt like it had a lot of impact. And I always had in my mind as I preached that particular series and those topics, I always had in my mind our middle school, our high school, and our college uh, adults that we have here in the church. And I mean, it got so good to me, I, I almost didn't stop. And so we started with why creation and why Jesus and why hell and why pray and why silence. And, uh, and, and, and we ended 2020 with why outreach. But today I want to, uh, uh, ended 20 sermons with why outreach, the end of 2019. Today I want to naturally segue us from mission focus to build a ramp onto our harvest teams by getting back to the truth for our end times from Romans and Revelation, and particularly from here in Romans chapter 2. And so let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into this. Father, I thank you again, Lord, for, for the body that you've given us, the other people, not just, not just those of us sitting here individually, not even watching in our homes, Lord, that you've given us each other as part of the body of Christ, and you've given us your word, and you've given us your Holy Spirit to enable us uh, Lord, we've got, to, we've got to get in the spot where we are going to survive, we're going to make it, and we're going to rescue others. And Lord, this is the year to do that. And Father, I pray you continue to direct us and to guide through your word. Uh, make all of us, Lord, to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit and follow hard after what you show us. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, uh, so in order to get back to this and for it to be all that it should be in your life, I need you to know that this is the ultimate victory. The gospel conquers all. I mean, what we're seeing right here, right now. So let me take you into the mindset of lost people in your life and the world that you once inhabited before you believed in Jesus. And you know, one question that I get all the time is, why isn't being, why isn't being good Good enough. I mean, my morality, I define my morality by things that do not hurt others. And so why should God care about anything else? I mean, I know God will judge the serial killer and the rapist. And, but how is it fair for God to condemn all the good people, meaning good people like me? I'm a scoutmaster, I'm a churchgoer, I'm a doctor, I'm a teacher, I'm EMT, I'm, I'm uh, you know, why would God take me and judge me? So can I just start us off by giving you an experiential explanation for why God judges us all? In other words, how is God just in condemning every human being outside of Jesus Christ? Well, let me open a window on your own experience to explain this, because this is number one. Our judgment of good and bad is relative. God's judgment is absolute. Now, you do know that there's a 20-question test to determine if you are a psychopath. A bunch of psychologists who apparently had dealt with a lot of psychopaths 
got together and they said, look, you know, let's uh, pool our information here about what we think the characteristics of a psychopath are. And uh, let's put this together into a personality assessment that you could take to determine if you're a psychopath. And did you know that no psychopath thinks he or she is a bad person? Not one. They don't think, oh, okay, look, I don't know if you're a psychopath or not. I'm just saying that psychopaths do not think they are bad people. And, you know, all the funerals I've ever done, I'd never had a family come up to me and, look, make sure you tell the truth and make sure you share what a rotten, no good scoundrel that person was. I mean, they just, they don't say that. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I've done some, some funerals for, you know, people that I knew, but I did not know the extended family. And, you know, they were like, okay, say this and this and this. And I had to lift the casket lid, make sure we were talking about the same person. And that's, that's when pastoral creativity comes into play. And, and so second, on the other hand, God judges us all as unworthy. This is number two, since our judgment of good and bad is self-centered. But God's is based on his own glory. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because like Jesus answered the rich young ruler who came up and wanted to know how he could have eternal life. He said, no one's good but God. So the issue is we measure by the standard of ourselves and we determine if we're really bad based on whether we can find somebody else who's badder. We find somebody else who's badder, well, then we're not bad. So we stand on the mountain and we look down and judge somebody in the valley. Well, I need you to know that God is the judge. So he looks down from the cosmos and he says, look, both of y'all are just as bad off. Now, you may not both be as bad, but you are as bad off. You say, Alan, you know, I thought you were out of the controversial stuff for a while, and, and, you know, here you are calling me out and my neighbors for not meeting a standard set by God which no human being can meet. I mean, did Brett Bartlett run off, uh, rub off on you or what? I mean, why, why are you being like this? I mean, when God sets a standard so high that only God himself can meet it, well, then why should I be blamed? Okay, let me take you to our text. Let me give you God's answer in Romans chapter 2. This is truth for our end times as to why it is not good just to be good enough. And as a matter of fact, I'll show you the ultimate victory today because the gospel conquers all. So let's ponder the principles of God's righteousness righteousness and his righteous judgment, uh, both in our community, on our society, in our country, and on this world. In Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus listed 13 sins that originate from the human heart. But at the end of Romans chapter 1, where we ended off last time, there are even more And yet they're very common things. They are things that are committed, most of them, many of them on a regular basis. And this is God's test for whether or not you are a psychopath. And you know that you're a psychopath because Paul links the behavior to the individual. See, this is my thesis for today's study. We sometimes say, love the sinner but hate the sin. And we should. We should love the sinner. And hate the sin, but in his holiness, 
God has to hate every person who has sin on them. So it's all good and fine to say, well, you know, Alan, because of that right there, that's why I'm an atheist. And my morality is defined by my reason. It is defined by my judgment of what is right and what does not hurt anyone else or at least what hurts the least amount of people. In other words, my God is the greater good and that is who I obey. Well, okay, but you know, once you cross that line and once you become an atheist, you have no origin story for morality at all, none. So what is moral to me may be immoral to you, and what is moral to you, even if it does not hurt me, may yet be immoral. So the only way to have a good God, a God who is good all the time, is to recognize that his definition of morality puts us all outside the boundary. It puts us all outside the boundary of his glory. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 29, Paul does not talk about the act of gossiping. He labels them whisperers. Not slandering, but a slanderer. In verse 30, look at verse 30, not backbiting, but being a backbiter. Not hating God as an act, the act of hating, but a hater as a person. Not despising, but despiteful, proud, boaster. Not inventing evil things, but the inventor. And then he says in verse 32, We who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. So we stand up and cheer whenever these people get their just desserts. I mean, they deserve that. I mean, every good American movie, whether it's Western or sci-fi or rom-com or superhero or action and adventure, it's only a good movie if the villain dies the big death. I mean, when the villain dies the big death in the end, that is when the whole theater stands up and breaks out in applause. But then we hit Romans 2. And there are many moments, you know, that I sit back and I think reflectively about my pastoring. And, I, you know, I'll have to be honest with you. I don't, I don't get discouraged per se about the, everything that's going on with the pandemic, and the virus and mass and elections, and everything else. What I get discouraged about are times when I go through conflict with someone. But then I think about Paul who faced conflict in every city and every synagogue he ever entered. And I don't think Paul felt any better after battle than what I do. But I do know that all of that conflict and all of that argument got funneled back and distilled into this book of Romans. So the book of Romans would not exist without the people Paul fought in both the marketplace and the synagogue. And since he was writing to people he did not know in the city of Rome, he'd never been there yet, he had never seen them, then he knows that he needs to answer in advance every possible objection to the gospel of grace that he preached. He knew he needed to prove we have the ultimate victory over all because the gospel conquers. 
And so Paul knew as soon as that letter arrived from him, carried by trusted ambassadors that could vouch that, yes, this is Paul, this is his writing, I'm, I came straight from, you know, straight from Compton to you, I, I, this is Paul's letter. He knew it would be read in church. He knew there would be unconverted Gentiles and unconverted Jews that were listening. So how do you prove to the church-going people or those who feel like they are good that being good is not good enough? I mean, there are bad people and there are good people. And, and it's just, it was back then, it was back then just like it is today. The bad people are in the palace, in the senate, and the good people are sitting in the pew or watching online. But if the good people are not saved... How do you show them how, how bad they really are? I mean, after all, the typical American is so self-confident and so self-content. So allow me to borrow the screen of your anointed imagination. On one side of the church in Rome, there was the conservatives. It wasn't the left side. It was the right side. And they, had, they counted themselves as part of the optimates. That meant the ones who were standing up for the Republic of Rome. On the left side of the uh, congregation were the Gentile progressives, part of the populares. And they were taking up for the people, not for big business. And, you know, the amazing thing about why this is truth for our end times is because we are the new Romans. We're living through the same thing. Because at the end of the Roman Republic... People were not viewed as individuals. They were not viewed individually. They were only viewed as part of a larger political group. And guess what? We've come full circle in 20 centuries. We do not see people as individuals anymore. We only see them in terms of whether or not they're part of our party, part of our protest, or part of our movement or not. So the Gentiles, well, they're just Marxist crazies. And the Jews, well, they're proud boys looking down at the moral debauchery fostered by the valueless liberal Gentile society. Well, this letter's hitting home now. And, and you're about to understand the prophetic window that God has us looking through in looking at Romans and Revelation as truth for our end times. So here's a destitute, dysfunctional tribe of Celts and barbarians with perverse pasts and sordid backgrounds, idolaters and addicts mostly, pagans, prostitutes, and pimps, ex-cons and ex-addicts. Well, they're not alcoholics, but they do suffer from the disease of alcoholism. They have no problem with the LGBTQ cadre and, and same-sex marriage, and they are the slaves, the runaways, and corrupt officials. Thieves and baby aborters mostly, uh, very late term, but upheld by the Supreme Court. Then you have the self-righteous ones. They are pro-life, their defense of marriage, their traditional values. I mean, they really enjoyed chapter one. I mean, they're all blogging and vlogging and, and commenting on their YouTube channel about how Paul just totally destroyed the opposition in chapter one. I mean, chapter 1 was an entire expose echoing the very things about Gentiles that they had been saying all along. But then the pastor reading the epistle turns a page. It gets, it gets kind of quiet. And they're saying, but hold it, Paul, we're the traditionalists. I mean, we are patriotic about our past. 
I mean, we're both fiscally and socially conservative, and, and we know who our founding fathers were. We are good people. Yes, but you underestimate the holiness of the standard of God, and you overestimate how much of the blessing you have actually came from you and your lifestyle, and it accrues to your glory, not God's. After all, you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Paul spends 14 verses in chapter 1 telling us why God is justified judging the Gentiles who buried the evidence of his existence and suppressed the truth that he gave them. But now he takes 29 verses in chapter 2 and 8 more in chapter 3 to tell us why good people being good is not good enough. And I wish you could just get this message to every lost person you know. I know some Sundays we get to, you know, we have some humor in the sermon, and this passage isn't built for comedy, it's built for conviction. Because everyone in America considers themselves good enough. Either, good enough, either because they were born here or they made it here, and we are great. And yet, this is our first point for study. All the good people you know need God's grace and salvation just as much as all the bad people you know. The moral person needs as much mercy as the immoral if he or she is without Christ. Everyone without exception is born into the wrong family when they are born physically. I mean, just listen to Jesus on this one. Here's, here's the meek and lowly Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 44, it's on your handout. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. And that is why everyone born has to be born again to be born spiritually and put into God's family in order to be saved. So really, this is a very simple message from kind of a deep and detailed book today. Paul thought it all out in advance before he ever committed it to parchment. And so here is why being good is not good enough. And my hope and my prayer is that you will take this, you will think about this, and then you will use this evangelistically as we go forward into the new year. Because there are three very important reasons that being good just ain't good enough. Watch, number one, you cannot escape self-condemnation. And this is verse one, look at verse one. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. You may not do them outwardly, but inwardly, but you do the same things, and you feel the same shame. Because first, letter A, you're condemned by your own inconsistencies. Verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So why be judgmental of anybody else? And yes, there are levels of sin. And yes, the sins that hurt more people should be punished harshest by society as the only sane deterrent. But at the bottom line, except for the grace of God, the wickedness of your own heart could have taken you all the way there with them.
Because here's the dealio, and this is number one, there's more than one way to commit idolatry. Because idolatry is anything you serve if it's not God. Idolatry is anything you love if it's not God. And anytime you put God second or half step with God or box God out, you've committed idolatry. So number two, there's more than one way to steal. I mean, you can steal time from your family, from your employer. You can steal truth by lying. You can steal someone's reputation with slander. You can steal from God by not tithing. And third, number three, there is more than one way to be immoral. And if you believe good deeds or religious good works make up for other bad behavior, that is a corruption of the plan of salvation. So that if you try to buy God's grace with anything, whoever is selling that to you is the pimp, and that is immorality. And that's the primary connotation of the word fornication in the book of Revelation. So we are condemned by our own inconsistencies, and then second, letter B, you are condemned by your own illusions. First, about your lineage. You're you're condemned by an illusion. Jews were under an illusion that they were safe because of their heredity. And in that respect, the same thing can be said for the Aryan white supremacist or the black Hebrew Israelite. Verse 7, to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first, but also of the Gentile. So parentage doesn't matter. And yet today some Americans think they're Christian because they were born to Christian parents. Or they have a relative who is a preacher or a priest or a nun. The second illusion, this is number two, is about your legalism. Jews were under the illusion they were safe because of the law. I mean, they had the entire Old Testament. Now, they had it, but they gave up reading it, but they had it. I mean, they only read today the Torah and the Talmud of the sages, uh, but they did have and still do have the Old Testament. And yet Paul places both groups on level ground this way. Verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And then in the final analysis, many of you have an illusion. Number three, about your lifestyle. Here's how it works out in our, um, you know, somewhat uh, uh, on the internet and in our society today. Well, why are the Jews smart and wealthy? It must be a conspiracy. Well, no, it's it's because they've accumulated the the wealth of generations of time of obeying Bible principles, like in the Book of Proverbs. They've got that behind them, so it's kind of not anybody's conspiracy except God's. They have inherited the blessing of following Bible principles from one generation to another over time. But all of us Gentiles say, well, look, I eat pork, drink beer, and chase other men's wives. 
Of course I am smarter. And I ought to be richer. So if I'm not, it must be a conspiracy of somebody. And, you know, it looks like a conspiracy of the Jews that I'm not. See, the Jews lived a different lifestyle, which in itself accrued benefit and blessing to their life. But of this, they were proud. Proud because they knew their Bible and they followed its principles. Proud instead of walking in the naked meekness and humility of the Christ-likeness that the blessing is there to produce. Oy vey. So you cannot escape self-condemnation. And second, this is number two, you cannot escape God's righteous condemnation. Now, first, letter A, we judge by what we feel. Right? We judge by what we, what we feel. Verse 2, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. God judges justly. We know that. God was in the room, so he knows what happened. But we are condemned because we judge by how we feel about something. But letter B, God judges by what he finds. Verse 3, and thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doeth the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Do you think God's going to pass over you just because their sin is big in public and yours is hidden in private? Jesus was always more comfortable with the open sinners than with the hidden hypocrites. Hello, somebody. I'm just saying, a comfortable in the sense of he spent time with them. He enjoyed their company. He always had time for the Mary Magdalene's, the prostitutes, and the publicans, but had little patience for the Pharisees. But if you are the Pharisee, whose condemnation of others is followed by hidden sin in your own heart, or if you are the Pharisee, who does not put yourself in the place of needing repentance, then do not think for a moment that God's going to skip you. See, the hypocrite judges by feeling what he feels about himself and in himself. Then the hypocrite judges by what he finds in others. And this takes away his excuse because he's condemning them for what he himself either has thought or has done, whether hidden or openly. And he forgets that God is going to judge by what God finds in him. And this is our second point for study. If you remove yourself from the place of needing repentance, then your condemnation of others boomerangs back on yourself. You judged by what you felt and what you found, but look at what you forgot. Because in the final analysis, this is number three, you cannot escape the need to be born again right now. Verse four, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? Verse 3 is the idea, you're going to escape because you don't deserve the judgment. Verse 4 is the idea, you must be okay because God hasn't judged you yet. Oh no, you mistake his patience and long-suffering for assent. You diss his goodness by mistaking it for acceptance. You despise and disdain, as verse 4 says, his forbearance and long-suffering. Not knowing that the goodness of God, not acknowledging, not realizing, not admitting the goodness of God is there to lead you to repent. Man, if breaking bad made me that bad off, surely God would tell me. I mean, if I were really in sin, surely God would show me. I mean, nothing very bad has happened to me yet, so God must be all right with me. 
You know what? I think God's even in this. I think that as long as I either pray first or ask forgiveness after, God's okay with it. Huh. Well, that's only because of what Ecclesiastes 8 verse 11 points out. Solomon points out, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. People in sin tend to think that because God has not pounced on them, that God's not going to pounce on them, when really God not pouncing on you is just an aspect of his patience giving you time to repent. There's still judgment coming, but that judgment is deferred by mercy. And this is our third point for study. God's forbearance is supposed to be leading you to repentance, not to indifference. And the same thing for those who are already saved. Because the forbearance of God toward our lost friends, toward our lost family, toward our lost community, should not lead us into indifference, but into evangelistic action. And that is the whole idea behind our harvest teams. Because to do anything else disrespects God's goodness. Yet both of us, saved and lost, use the riches of his long-suffering as our budget for sin and apathy. See, if God is being good to you, that should cause you to deal with your sin and repent. Because the truth for these end times is that something is coming. We say, Alan, what? What's coming? Okay, verse 16. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Not according to what they thought about what they were doing. Not according to how many people what they did hurt. But according to my gospel. Have they accepted my gospel? Did they accept my good news? The good news of grace. Claiming nothing but the merits of Christ's blood, claiming nothing but the mercies of God's love, claiming nothing but the promises of His Word. Step forward this year and do that. And you can win ultimate victory because the gospel conquers all. At the judgment seat of Christ, God judges the actions and covers the attitudes of the born-again believer with Jesus' blood. Because when we trust Jesus for eternal life, our faith in his finished work activates God's grace. And this is our final point for study. God's grace saved us from sin instantly. The penalty of sin. And it started saving us from ourselves to make us more like Christ progressively. Do not offer people the hope of change without bringing them the power of the gospel. And the power of the word. And you know, we become so distrustful of God's power and his power in the gospel and in the word that we today believe that the word of God's not sufficient. And the gospel, and so we go to all sorts of other things and we no longer trust the word of God to do the work as it is applied and believed in our life. But at the great white throne, God judges the lost world of humanity based on things you cannot see. Neither your actions nor your intentions will be covered if you are not saved. You will be judged according to Paul's gospel. So then all people are guilty of all things. 
The heathen is condemned because he suppresses the truth God gave him in creation, even if he never hears, hears anything from the Bible or about Jesus or the gospel. He, if he's given light, God will respond to his response to light. But when he suppresses it and buries it and, and puts truth in the grave, the moralist is a hypocrite because he condemns others for acting out what he himself thinks and what is in his heart and what his own conscience condemns him for in breaking his own internal law. I mean, people don't even keep their own standard, much less God's. So Paul shows the heathen, the dirty sinner, then the hypocrite, the sophisticated sinner, next time in Romans. Paul's going to pick up in the middle of chapter 2 and deal with the Hebrew, the religious sinner, who thinks he's in a special position, and actually he's really in more trouble because he's got more light. Every head bowed, every eye closed. You need to change families today, and you need to do it right now. If, if you were born physically, you were born into Adam's fallen family. So you have physical life, but you need eternal life. And you can get that this moment by being born again, by letting the seed of the Word of God and, and the Holy Spirit come together to conceive new life in your soul. You say, Alan, how do I do that? Well, just pray. Pray with me right now and say, God, save me for Jesus' sake. I trust Jesus today for eternal life. Jesus Christ, I give you my life. I give you my life so that you will become my Lord. And your faith in Christ's finished work will activate God's grace. And the Bible says then you are born again. Your sins are forgiven. You are given life after death. You are given eternal life right now. And being born again, you are put in Christ and the Holy Spirit is put in you. So if you pray like that, make sure you come up here as soon as we get finished and and let me know so I can give you a copy of my book, Next Steps for New Believers, or let us know if you're online. This is the year to make it and make a difference. Go ahead and stand as we get ready to pray. If you're already saved and you want to be baptized, if you want to join our church, if you want to be discipled, if you have need for any spiritual help or assistance, make sure you come up here when, when I get done praying or contact us online and let us know. Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your word. I thank you that how sufficient the word of God is. And Lord, so many of us who are believers, who are actually Christians and some Christian leaders have done no better than the lost Gentile, the heathen, who suppresses the truth of God. And we've done no better because we've said and felt and thought and told others that the word of God is not sufficient. We've taken the truth. We've taken the gospel that has the power, and we've paralyzed it by our unbelief. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. We repent right now. Your goodness to us, even over this last year, in getting us here to this point, cannot be denied, and it should not be discarded. Lord, we repent. We want to come to you now confessing, Lord, the, the word of God will do the work. When we believe it and apply it, the Holy Spirit is all-powerful. We, we, can, we can make this the year to make it and to make a difference. 
And Lord, help us do that starting right now. For we ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. No service tonight, nor one. I'll see you next Sunday. Uh, Sign up to be on a harvest team so we can organize those this month. Stay in the Bible, share the gospel, love you, happy new year. You're dismissed.